Let's pray. Our Lord God, we, we hope you enjoyed our concert this morning to you. An offering of praise from lips that are fully devoted to you. What can we give you? You don't need anything. So we give you our worship and our praise. We give you our hearts. We ask that they might be your throne room, Lord. That you might find in us a people that are willing and available for your glory and your honor. So now, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your truth. Teach us your ways. Encourage your people, I pray, with the goodness of your grace and your mercy. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look to the Lord for what would be a his message to you for the uh, conclusion of 2012. It seemed that we weren't to be finished with Christmas quite yet, the Christmas story. The message that I think that the Lord has for you and me and, and all of his people, and I'm 100% convinced of this, is that God wants you to be confident and secure and joyful and purposeful and fearless and faith-filled. I'm 100% sure of that. But that's what God has for you, each one of you, that, that, that where you are anxious or nervous or feeling a sense of insecurity or lack of confidence, that should all be washed away By the truth that God has for you. That he wants his people, among all the peoples in the world, to stand forth with confidence and security and fearlessness and joy. And to be filled with faith. To be encouraged people. To be filled with hope. And so it occurred to me that maybe if we could once again have a a fresh look behind the scenes of the hard and horrendous circumstances that happened at the time of the incarnation, that maybe you would have a fresh injection of courage and a new sense of well-being. So would you turn in your Bibles this morning? I want us to be able to look at a vantage point from where God sees things with respect to the... um, the way he is purposing his universe, and we as his people. I'm not sure if there's a harder trial in life to face than feeling a sense of powerlessness at whatever level that might be, whether it's financial or, or, or physical, whether you're health-wise, the sense that... Um, Things are outside of your control, whether it's political or 
or rank those above you, whatever it might be. I, I'm not sure there's a, a harder trial in life to face than, than that sense of complete powerlessness. And we wonder if, it's, if God can actually look after us. Can he even find me? Will he look after me always? No matter what? In the Christmas story, I think the, uh, the major plot of the first Christmas is a powerful king who puts out a contract on a helpless infant. Helpless with italics. In fact, the summary of the story, the, the incarnation, the Christmas story, a quick summary of it is, is quite simply this. All the raw human power of vigor and vitality and vision, the king, Herod, locked and loaded, fully resourced, with the best contract killer's money can buy, is no match for the most vulnerable in God's tender care. Jesus, a baby in a barn. His body armor is a rickety feed trough. His mother's a naive teenager. His father is a, a non-worldly carpenter from Hicksville. No disrespect, Arnold. A whole row of hicks over there. <laughs> breathing down on the bakers. Because, beloved, if God is for you, you are never overmatched. Not ever. And, and I want to show you that from God's word this morning. I want to examine some of the details of of what I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 2, I want to start reading at verse 13. It doesn't get more vulnerable in life than a baby. And it doesn't get more powerful in human terms than a king. And when a most powerful king is against the most vulnerable human being, it should have been an easy kill. So I, I'm not sure where you're at this morning in terms of the sense of vulnerability, the sense of insecurity, the sense of lacking in confidence, the sense of nervousness about your powerlessness. But I want you to know that this first Christmas story is the ultimate contrast between all that human power had and from a human perspective the weakest that a human can ever be a baby when the Lord when they had gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream get up he said take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called 
my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity. You know, I've read this story, I can't tell you how many times. I just never noticed. And its vicinity before. Anybody with me or did you all notice that before? Yeah, we all noticed that, Rick. You're the idiot. (laughs) It wasn't just Bethlehem. It was some of the Hicksville around Bethlehem as well. Who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He'll be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Matthew begins his depiction of the life and times of Jesus' humanity in chapter 1 by giving a great genealogy and tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. That's an important truth. Matthew, from the very beginning of his depiction of who Jesus is and what his work and person would be, wants to remind all of us that Jesus is the link from the people of God of Abraham to us. An important linkage. Jesus will champion the new Israel. The people of God. And he ties us into the, uh, the promises that God has given to the ancient people of God. In Genesis 12, verse 2. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Listen to me. You lacking in confidence or security or nervous or anxious about your situation. Abraham, who handed off the promises of God to Moses, and the prophecy of God's word that one like Moses would come. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Acts 3, 22. That one was Jesus, who received the transfer of the promises. The promises that were always given to the people of God, and he in turn, as our representative head, Christ Jesus, the Lord of the church, ties us into the promises of the people of God. So that the promise to Abraham and the people of God of Israel has been transferred to you, the people of God of the new Israel. God says of you and of me, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. 
This is not a promise for ethnic Israel. This is a promise, an enduring promise of God to the people of God. We are tied in as one people. The people of God from the beginning through to the end. One people of God. You are the ones who have the promises of God. And that was his mission. To transfer those promises to all who are in Christ Jesus. The child, of course, is mentioned in this text nine times to, I think, heighten an awareness of the contrast between this vulnerable baby in the purposes of God over against all that wickedness could throw against him. But he is the promised one, the Messiah. Not the least bit vulnerable. Not the least bit helpless. Not the least bit weak. Because his Father in heaven had plans and purposes for him. And those plans and purposes included the fact that he is the treasured son of God. And all those who would be in Christ become the treasured possession of God. You know who you are. Do you know who you are this morning if you are in Christ? You are most blessed You are not vulnerable. You are not weak. You are not helpless. You are the treasured possession of Almighty God. All the power arrayed against you in whatever form it comes cannot touch or interfere with the purposes and plans that God has for you. And so as this story continues to unfold, there are three geographical locations that I think are powerful messages, and I want to summarize them for you this morning, that really define the mission and mark Jesus' uh, representative work as our Lord and our Savior, and especially in the tough and trying places of life. Three powerful messages. One thing we learn quickly is like us, Jesus is forced from infancy to face the danger of opposition and rejection. And so he's sent to Egypt. That's our first. There's Egypt and Bethlehem and Nazareth. So those are the three points of call that we're going to stop at this morning for a few moments. He's sent to Egypt. Because Egypt was the ancient place of hiding where God had taken his people before and hid them there. But the place of hiding became the place of hardship. It regularly does. And why is that? Because hardship reminds us in a very powerful way of our helplessness. And helplessness drives us to long for a savior, a deliverer who will rescue our hearts. And so it was. So Jesus retraces the steps of deliverance. Why? Because he's going to be the champion of deliverance. 
The one who rescues people. Who takes them away from their sins and their selfishness and their propensity to follow Satan's ways. And brings them into his marvelous kingdom of light. And under his protective custody. So Jesus is taking over the mission that humanity desperately failed to do. From Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, humanity was supposed to take and demonstrate to the world the greatness of its creator. And they failed miserably. The end of chapter 11 of Genesis, you find the people building a tower to their own greatness instead of building faith into people's life with respect to the greatness of their creator, God. And so God calls a people, a specific people, calls Abraham. And from Genesis chapter 12 through to Malachi, that people failed miserably to bring the world to an awareness of the greatness of a saving God. And so the Father sends his champion, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will do through the church what the people did fail to do before, what Israel failed to do, which is to bless the world with the good news of the gospel of a saving God who rescues people from their sins from their selfishness. A God who, by the way, is unrecognized, unloved, disregarded, scoffed at. The world sells out to the murderer and the liar and the thief. And so Jesus is presented here to us as God's final and greatest provision for mankind. What everyone, this, the, every system, failed to do before, Jesus does to bring people to God and God to people. And we find out as we continue on in the text that while he was in Egypt, Evil did what evil does. It destroys. It kills. It overkills. Herod, the butcher of Bethlehem, determines that he will wipe out a whole generation of little boys from two years old and under. That's what... Um, Wickedness does. It preys on the vulnerable and the weak. The total opposite of, of God who lifts up and strengthens the vulnerable and the weak. He helps the lowly. He has mercy on those who are lost. Wickedness always overkills threats to selfdom. There is no purposeful surgical strike here. 
is just total annihilation. Total nastiness. Because wickedness is insatiable. How much more? We read this story and we realize that um, nothing much has changed. How much longer will wickedness prevail? I wonder if we could interview the the 50,000 families in Syria who have the mothers and fathers who've lost sons and daughters. The 10 to 30 little boys under two. It's the grand attempt of Satan to wipe out God's chosen. He hopes, you know, that God won't be looking He hopes that he can take out God's resources before God notices. It's been done through history. It was done in Egypt. When the edict was given to destroy the Hebrew boys. It was done again in Bethlehem. And Matthew, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, says um, it reminded him of Ramah. Now, Ramah's not Bethlehem. Ramah, in fact, is about uh, five miles north of Jerusalem, or eight kilometers, depending on your orientation. Ten miles north of Bethlehem, 16 kilometers. It was, you see, the roundup place for the exiles when Nebuchadnezzar was taking Israel into captivity. You can read about it in Jeremiah. It's given to you in the text. And Rachel is the representative mother of Israel. Crying out, how long, how long are the people of God going to be taken away by the ravages of evil and wickedness? It was another wicked king who sought to round up the people of God and annihilate them. Hoping that it could be done before God would notice. And Matthew can't help but look at Bethlehem and say, it's happening all over again. Evil is seeking to destroy the chosen people of God. And maybe God won't notice. Wickedness is relentless. And what was particularly horrendous, I think, to the people of that moment was the fact that they thought their enemies were Rome. They thought the little boys were at risk from Rome. They never thought it would be their own king. It always comes as a shock when those who are given leadership to protect, to care, to extend grace, turn into murderers and killers. Even a king can become a killer of little babies.
what is so shocking south of the border to our friends south of the border is Americans killing Americans. If there's one message that comes out of this section, this second section, it's this. Oh, how desperately the world needs a savior. People need a real and a righteous king. One who will care for them and love them and not brutalize them. But the good news is that all the power of hell that was arrayed against this little baby, Jesus, could not thwart the saving purposes of God. By the time we get to verse 19, we realize that Jesus is alive. And the wicked, powerful Herod, the one with all of the resources, all that human power could muster, can't keep himself alive. On March the 4th, or sorry, March 4 BC, Herod is remembered no more. He dies. You say, wait a second, 4 BC? Died before Jesus was born? No, no, our calendars are a little bit flawed. That's why I wasn't worried about the Mayan thing. <laughs> that, that deal happened six years ago. See, it's really 2019 that we're going into. Probably. Herod definitely died 4 BC. Jesus was born before that. Somewhere in that two-year range. Herod, um, just a side note, was so wicked that he hired some assassins to kill a bunch of important people the day he died so that there would be mourning and crying in Israel because no one would cry for him. But history records that his sister, Salome, countermanded the order. And people weren't actually killed. So King Herod, the powerful king, dies. And Jesus changes all the calendars. The little vulnerable baby in a feeding trough. That one. So that everybody in the world marks their own birth dates as they relate to his birth date. There's one more geopolitical situation I want to bring to your attention this morning. We've talked about Egypt. We've talked about Bethlehem. But we haven't talked about Nazareth. It says in the text that because um, Archelaus, the son of Herod, was in charge and was going to be worse, a dream was granted to Joseph to take the family to Galilee. 
Don't you think that's encouraging and comforting to know that our God already knows in advance the pitfalls and dangers that are before us? The ones that no one else can see or could possibly know? History tells us that Archelaus reigned over Judea for 10 years and then was exiled by Rome because he was so horrible to Gaul because they feared a Palestinian uprising. And from then on, Roman prefects were governing, of which we get the prefect Pontius Pilate later on. And so this vulnerable family is led by the Spirit of God to a place called Nowheresville. Nazareth. I say that under scriptural advisement. Because it was Nathaniel who would become one of the disciples who said, you tell me, what good can come from Nowheresville? That's what he was saying. Nazareth? I'll resist the urge of naming some place around here really small and out of the... Because someone will be from there and... It'll spoil your whole Christmas, or maybe spoil mine. So I'll just say Nowheresville. Nobody's from there, are you? And as you read this, you think, wait a second. This is not the place to manufacture a Messiah. Nazareth? Are you kidding? There's maybe 500 people there. The size that, where everybody knows everybody's business, you know, that kind of a place. They all know too much about everybody. That's why Jesus said, hey, can a prophet get respect from his hometown? So when you feel stranded somewhere, Nowheresville, your workplace, you're in Nowheresville department, or town, or in your family, or maybe you feel that way in the church. I'm nobody. I'm, I'm Nowheresville. That's where Jesus came from. The Messiah. The most important being in the universe. Grew up in Nowheresville. But that's not the whole story. We all know that God could have taken care of Jesus and left him in Judea, Archelaus was no match for God. It wasn't like God had to send Jesus to Nazareth on the run. Well, I better get Jesus to Nazareth because there's no way I can take care of Archelaus. That's not why he went to Nazareth. He was moved to Nazareth because in a most profound way, the people of Nazareth, I would say, were people of the book. See, Nazareth, it comes from the Hebrew word netzer. They were netzerites. Netzer means branch or shoot. In, in other words, they were actually, they actually called this place Branchville. Because this 500 or so people were were relatives of King David. 
That's where uh, the line of David had settled. They'd settled there. Where was Messiah to come from? The line of David. These were the people who took God's word at face value. These were the people who believed Isaiah 11. A shoot or a branch will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. These people in Nowheresville believe that. And so when they settled there, they said, we'll call this place Shootville, Branchville. We'll call this place the place where hope is kept alive for Messiah. And we'll watch for him. We'll believe God. We'll believe that God will send Messiah Oh, this was no Nowheresville. Nathaniel got it all wrong. He didn't understand that of all the places in Israel, that town named themselves because of their faith in God. That's how we ought to be known. We ought to be um, people who label ourselves, we believe. We believe God's promises. In the face of repeated occupations, as country and nation after nation rolled across Nazareth, the name didn't change. It's Nazareth. We are Nazarites. We are Nazarenes. We believe Christ is coming again, you know. We need to be that kind of a person, that kind of a people that, that believe, that continue to hold out hope for our coming Lord. People ought to know that about us. They ought to know that we are the Nazarites. We, we believe that Christ will come again. They believed God's rescue would come. The branch. And sure enough, Out of Nazareth comes a deliverer. And it's fitting, I think, don't you, that the despised deliverer prophesied by Isaiah 53, he'll be despised, should come out of a despised town, an obscure place. The reason that they didn't like that town is the same reason people don't love us. We remind them of the light in their darkness. So I'm not sure where you are in Nowheresville, obscurity, in your workplace, and your family, in the church. 
geographically. But I do know this. God knows exactly where you are. Knows your address. Knows who you are. And he knows his plans for you. And it doesn't matter where you are in obscurity. You're only obscure to people. You're not obscure to God. Out of obscurity. Natesurville. Nowhereville. Comes Messiah. That's the message that uh, Matthew wanted us to know and settle on. So you have Egypt. A place of hiding and a place of hardship, a place of helplessness. You have Bethlehem, a place of slaughter. You have Nazareth, a place of obscurity. Why? Why did the Father in heaven pick those three places? Because it tells us for all time what we learn from Jesus is that his help came from the Father. He was totally, completely dependent on God the Father. And so are we. Regardless of where you are, regardless of what situation you're in, the lessons for all of us are every breath we take, every moment we live, every place we are, we are people dependent on God. And we are confident and secure and joy-filled and faith-filled and encouraged Because God watches over us. And his purposes will prevail. God makes the vulnerable invincible. The at risk untouchable. Vulnerabilities, hardships, hurts, challenges, perplexities, frustrations. we We know all of those. They're all his way of making sure we are dependent upon him. And I want to tell you as we close this year that as the dark breezes of wickedness seem to be picking up more steam, and I think you'll all agree with me, we are becoming more and more vulnerable, at risk. Our way of life is becoming more and more obscure and bizarre to lost people. Nazarites who believe in a baby born in a manger? You gotta be kidding. That's what they think of us. So we are lambs, we are babies, we're exposed for slaughter. We're the Nazarites scheduled for scorn. Can anything good come out of Calvary? The church. Jesus was vulnerable, at risk, obscure, and was, in fact, the conquering king. And the word of God says to us that God has made us more 
then conquerors through Christ who loves us. I think the only appropriate way to close this morning is to remind each of us that this story of protective custody, predetermined purposes of God, isn't some sort of interesting fable that, that is some sort of moral lesson to give universal hope to everyone. It's the moral of everybody's story. It's not. The Savior Jesus Christ came to transfer these promises of blessing and being a blessing to those who are in Christ alone. The the great danger of the Christmas story, the, the great danger of the Christmas season is that all of a sudden for a moment everybody thinks they're in. Sing a Christmas carol, send a Christmas card, show some love to somebody and God's okay with that. No, this isn't, the, this isn't the moral of everybody's story. This is the story for those who are in Christ alone. Everybody else is vulnerable and at risk and obscure. And nothing's going to change that except for Christ. These promises are for those who make room in their hearts for Jesus. Whether you are near or far off. And although the plan of your life seems bewildering, it often does. It certainly did for Mary and Joseph. Our morning vantage point today is a behind-the-scenes look at reality. God is in charge. Jesus, the baby of Bethlehem, is the Lord of glory. So clear away all the debris of doubt in your heart. And if you are a follower, a disciple of Christ, welcome him with new profound faithfulness in your life. If you aren't, make room for him in your life as fast as you can. Our Father and our God. May that babe of Bethlehem, the Lord of glory, find a place in our hearts, the place of honor in our hearts. May we welcome him this Christmas. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know where the safest barn in all of the universe was that first Christmas night? It was the barn where the baby Jesus was. You know where the safest heart is in all the universe? It's the heart that has the Lord Jesus Christ. Confidence, security, joy. Hope, faith-filled, never anxious. Go into 2013 with the encouragement of knowing that your Father in heaven considers you a treasured possession of his. Man will plan 
that the purposes of God prevail. Our Father and our God. May the message and invitation be taken seriously in our lives. You are our God. You welcome those who welcome you. So thank you, Father. Thank you this end of the year for your provision and your love and to know that we are safely in your hands as treasured possessions of yours. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.